All right. Uh, the last time I preached here uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that's where we're going to be again this morning, uh, the message is about unity in the church. Interestingly, this is my first Sunday, and it's kind of like part three in a series, okay? Uh, but the message is about unity in the church. And remember, though, the heart of the message was the gospel. It was about unity, but the heart of the message was the gospel. And we saw in God's word that our central message in evangelism, of course, needs to be the gospel, and that our central message in discipleship as a church must be the gospel. We don't change it. We apply it to different situations differently in in our walk with Christ, but the central message of everything we do is the word of the cross. It's the gospel. And we saw from the Word of God that if we are going to be united, we have to be on the same page. As a church, we've got to be on the same page. And that same page is the gospel. It's the gospel. And so the conclusion of our last message was, if we will be a gospel-centered church, then we will be a united church. Let me say that if-then statement again, okay? If we will be a gospel-centered church, then we will be a united church. Unity is a fruit of something that came before. Do you see that? We don't have to get united to get stuff done. If we will be gospel-centered, unity will follow. And we're going to see today that when unity follows because we're a gospel-centered church, stuff will get done because there's going to be power there. Okay? Uh, You might be thinking of this possible pushback. We are a Christian church, right? Uh, shouldn't we be centered around Jesus Christ? Why are we saying gospel-centered? Shouldn't we be Christ-centered? And you're not wrong for thinking that by any means, but 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this. It calls it the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So the glory of Christ and his work is found in the gospel. So for us to be truly a Christ-centered church, we must be also a gospel-centered church. Church, we don't separate the two. They go hand in hand. They go together. So if we were to ask the question, what will keep First Baptist Church united? The short answer is the gospel. Keeping the main thing, the main thing. It's the easy way to say it. We want to keep the main thing, the main thing around here. But now as we move on in First Corinthians chapter 1, our question for today is going to be, now where does our ministry get its power from? Or, we can ask it this way, how can we make sure that our ministry here is effective? We do want to be effective, right? Or, we could ask it this way, how can we make the biggest impact? How can we make the biggest impact? And we think about, on who? On the people of our church. We want to be growing together. We want to be discipling one another. We want to think about our children as they grow up in this church. How can we have the greatest impact on them? And then also, how can we have the greatest impact on Mount Pleasant? And the surrounding area, and even Michigan, and the United States, and the world. Uh, We had that to think about this morning, didn't we? Right in front of us. How can we have the greatest impact? And I'm sure you can probably already guess the answer. But let's look to God's word to find it. Let's let him tell us what it is. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'll be preaching today, verses uh, 18 through 25, but we'll start reading in verse 17 just to kind of pick us back up where we left off, okay? So verse 17 in 1 Corinthians 1. 
It says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Remember, Paul didn't want to be the main uh, event. He wanted the gospel. He wanted Christ to be the main event. Now verse 18. For the word of, cro- well, the, word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you gave us Christ. uh, That he was willing to come and live a perfect and sinless life and, and give himself for us on the cross. We thank you for the power that you've given us through the gospel and pray that, Lord, as we look at this passage today, that our our hearts and our our thinking would be renewed in our commitment uh, to believing the truth and the power of your message. And that it would work in us sanctification. And that part of that sanctification would be working in us a desire to communicate this message, to proclaim this message. And I pray that you'd bless it. And that we'd be able to see uh, ourselves and people in and amongst us growing. And see people put in their faith in Christ. And I pray all of this in his name. Amen. So verse 18, it says, For the word of the cross, and and another way we could say the word of the cross, that's the gospel. That's the gospel message. Remember, God is holy. He's righteous. Uh, We are not. Amen? We're sinners. Christ, though, God the Son, lived a perfect and sinless life. And he died on the cross. Did he deserve to die? No, death is a consequence of sin, and there was no sin in him, and yet he died on the cross. He gave up his life willingly to pay for our sin. And not just a down payment to get us started living right so we could make it to heaven, but for all of it. He died for all of our sin. And then when a person, a sinner, repents, remember the word repent means to turn. I was going this way, and I've been thinking this way, And then I learn the truth of the gospel and I turn. And my thinking, and then what follows my thinking is my actions. And I turn, I repent, and I turn to God. When a person repents and puts his or her faith in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, his shed blood, that person will be saved. That's our message. That's the gospel message. This message, it says here in this verse, is folly. It's foolishness to those who are 
perishing. I think about perishing. Who are these people? Sometimes we call these people the lost. They're spiritually dead. They're spiritually blind. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 13, has uh, the account of the great white throne judgment. And at that place, at that time, those who are not saved, the lost, uh, their final judgment will take place. And it says after that, there's eternal hell and the lake of fire. And this is, it says in that passage, this is the second death. So these people are the perishing. And that ought to break our hearts too, right? Uh, But to these people, the message of the gospel sounds like foolishness. But to us, who are being saved, it is, it says here what? The power of God. Uh, So where is the power of God found? We think about so many things and people share stories and amazing things that they see, but but really now, come on, where is the greatest density of the power of God found in anything that we see? It says here it's in the gospel. It's not in a person, it's not in tactics, it's not in methods, it's not even in creation. The, the Bible doesn't say that creation is the greatest display of the power of God, though it is a great one. But the greatest display of the power of God is found in the gospel itself, in that message. Now this is interesting. Verse 19 says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Go ahead and look at Isaiah 29 with me. Isaiah 29. And we're going to look at verses 13 through 16 here. This passage here from verse 19 is taken from Isaiah 29. And often, this will be helpful to you in your own Bible study, often when you see a a New Testament passage that quotes an Old Testament passage, it's not just that verse that they're alluding back to. It's often what that verse is in its context. So we want to see what's happening in this context, okay? So Isaiah 29 verse 13 says, And the Lord said, Because this people, these are the Jewish people, they draw near with their mouth... And honor me with their lips. So you see the the picture here of a religious exercise? While their hearts are far from me. Remember that man sees the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. What's our motivation? It says, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Their religious experience and their religious exercise was geared more, anchored more to what people were telling them to do than what God's interest was and what God's commandments were, if that makes sense. Verse 14 says, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. Do you hear the grace of God there? What should it have said potentially in our thinking? These people say nice things, they do nice things, but their heart is far from me. Therefore, I'm going to wipe them out. (laughs) That might be what we would think it should say, but no, God doesn't do that. In his grace, he says, I'm going to do wonderful things again with this people. And so we think forward to the end times and and the remnant of Israel that God saves in the last days. He says he's going to do this with wonder upon wonder. And then here's this quote. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. So the wisdom of the world's gone amongst them. The discernment of their discerning uh, that shall be hidden. And then verse 15 says, Ah, you who hide deep counsel from the Lord whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? 
Who knows us? Uh, By the way, who sees them? Who knows us? God does. He's not ignorant. Verse 16 says, You turned things upside down. And this is speaking specifically of the Jewish people here, but we know in Romans 1 and other passages in the Bible that we all do this. We all turn things upside down. The exchange of glory where the glory should belong to God, but it is then instead given to the creation. He says, Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made, that's us, should say of its maker, he didn't make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. We have to ask the question here, what kind of God, little g, lowercase g, what kind of God does the wisdom or the discernment of the world create? And as we look through history, what we find over and over again in all false gods and all false deities are things that were made by man in order to give me what I want. If I want sunshine, I have a God for my sunshine. If I want rain, I have a God for my rain. If I want God for my uh, produce and my farm, I have a God of fertility. And all of these different kinds of things that mankind has made over the ages to get stuff. Uh, That's what the wisdom of the world has produced. One that gives me whatever I want. Uh, But then also we have to think about this and, and ask ourselves in our own hearts, What does God appear to turn into when we get to decide who he is? And this happens more often than we might think. Amongst us. In in my heart. And in yours. When we decide that he needs to be who we want him to be. Sometimes we are given the strongest indication of this when we're angry with him for not answering a certain prayer of ours. And we forget that he's the one who is sovereign, that he's the one who made us, and that he knows a little bit more than we do. And this is what the Jews did. They were giving lip service to the right God, the only God, the true God, but they were shaping and changing him into something that was just like the gods of the other peoples to give them their goodies, to give them what they wanted. We we need to make sure we don't do the same In verse 20 here, these rhetorical questions, he asked, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Uh, Debaters of this age, it changes age to age, doesn't it? The things that we debate in our culture. Uh, These are all rhetorical questions. Think of the book of Job when God challenges Job at the end. Is there any debater or any wise man or any anything in this world that can stand up to the wisdom of God? And of course the answer is no. He says, has God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And we think even of the gods that we invent and how their job is to serve us and to give us everything we want. But think about Christ, who he himself said was going to become and did become the servant of all and gave us what we needed in his death on the cross. Verse 21 says, for since in the wisdom of God, The world did not know God through wisdom. That phrase right there, the world did not know God through wisdom. Think about this now. Uh, Biblically speaking, mankind being dead, 
Do dead men just think of things? No, because they're dead, right? Being dead and being blind, mankind can't and mankind won't find God through their wisdom, through their cunning, through their intellect. Uh, Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Realize it says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Romans 3, 11, remember it says that no one understands and no one seeks for God. But he says here, It pleased God through the foolishness, the folly of what we preach. And that word means to proclaim. Okay, that's not just the preachers, the only one who preaches. We all preach. Okay? Amen? We all proclaim this message to save those who believe. And by the way, what is that message that we preach? It's the gospel. The word of the cross. Pointing people to Christ. Verse 22, and we're going to do some reading here along with this verse, okay? But it's going to be helpful to us to understand where these things are coming from. So get your reading glasses out if you need them. Here we go. It says that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Prove it. Okay. John chapter 6. Go to John chapter 6 with me. And this is for the statement that Jews demand signs. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Remember, they were all brought together. Jesus had compassion on them. Uh, They had nothing to eat. Uh, The boy comes with the five loaves and the two fish, and Christ blesses it and then feeds the 5,000 with that. Remember that? It was a miracle, and they all got food. And then that night, the disciples get in the boat. They start to go across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was by himself, but then he wants to head out over there with them. And they don't meet him on the other side because he was doing what? Walking on the water. And then eventually he hops in the boat with them. They get to the other side. Now look at verse 22 of chapter, John chapter 6. It says, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Now, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. That was the miracle that just happened. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, so far, so good, right? It says they're seeking after Jesus. That's a good thing. We'd think that that's a great thing. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, or them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And those signs aren't like miracle signs. Those are signs of who I am. And we'll see that in a little bit here. Verse 27 says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So, so far, Jesus here is setting up the argument, setting up the difference of opinion. There's stuff that you want, namely food, and then there's me, the Messiah. Which do you want? Do you see that so far? Uh, Verse 28, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
So they said to him, then what? You see what that word is? What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What? (laughs) Do you see this? What did Jesus just do yesterday? He gave them bread. (laughs) And they're saying, well, we'll believe you if you do a sign for us. Give us bread. I just did. I'm sure Jesus did not respond that way. I might. I might. (laughs) What were the Jews looking for? (laughs) They wanted their tummies filled. They wanted him to give them bread yesterday, and he did. Okay, check. Now it's today. More, please. And what were they going to do tomorrow? Bread. And the next day? Bread. That's the God they wanted right there and then. That's what they wanted. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. He's picking it there, uh, following after the men who looked like they were giving him the stuff instead of the God who gave it to them. He said, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Again, this uh, option here, what bread do you want? For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread. How often? Always. Yeah, every day. They're still not getting it. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Forgive me for putting some sarcastic tones in that. I'm just trying to help us see the difference here. He says this, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. To those who are perishing, sounds like foolishness. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. To those who believe, it's the power of God. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Amen. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus gives them himself. He gives them the message of the gospel. And what does it say they do? Just the beginning of verse 41, and then we're done with this one. The Jews grumbled about him. So typically, in this story, the Jewish people, in their response to Christ, they just wanted signs. They didn't want a savior, they wanted signs. And then look at Acts 17. It says in this verse from 1 Corinthians that also Greeks seek wisdom. And I think the best account of this is found in Acts 17. This is when Paul is in Athens. He's in Athens uh, at Mars Hill, a place called the Areopagus. And this was uh, uh, the epicenter, of, if you will, of Greek philosophy and people coming together. Let's see what this says here. I'm going to start reading in verse 16. It says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. I just say here, uh, we don't always want to just say, be like Paul or be like David or whatever. We want to be like Christ. But it is great to note here that when Paul saw the condition of the city, it pricked him in his heart. And I would just ask us, you know, for us, we're coming here and we're new and we're seeing things afresh. So it's easy for us to get pricked in the heart. 
But when we were in Toledo for a long time, it was harder for us to be pricked in the heart because it's just what we see every day. You know, we have a city here. Would you agree that most of the people of our city probably don't know Christ? Let's be pricked in our heart for what's going on around us. Verse 17 says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, these are Greeks now, the, the Greek philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler, that's a kind word, what does this babbler wish to say? Now, others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they acknowledge the fact that all these gods that are out there that are being spoken of, they're just different foreign div- divinities, right? These people have their god, these people have their god, these people have their god. Paul's got one too we haven't heard about yet. Let's hear him out. Verse 19, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things, new things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And this parenthetical statement here, he says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing, they'd spend their time in nothing, except telling or hearing something new. So their, their, their kicks for the day were going to be hearing this new God. Sounds like fun. Verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. That word could also be superstitious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. In case we missed somebody out there, Let's make one more statue to the unknown God. And Paul enters into this with them. Uh, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it. By the way, where does Paul start with these people? Creation. Because what do they know? Nothing. Let's go back to Genesis 1. Okay? And sometimes that's where we have to start, isn't it? We can't assume that everybody we see knows the story, and just needs an extra nudge. We are in a place and a time where we got to go to Genesis 1. And that's okay. Let's do it. Uh, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. That's not like our gods. Nor is he served by human hands. Not like our gods. As though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind... Is he a regional God? No. To all mankind, life. He gives life? He doesn't just give, like, corn? No, he gives life and breath and, in case you're wondering, everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined, in his sovereignty, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. The transcendence, God being bigger and above anything we could ever hope to imagine, and the imminence, God being near to us and drawing near and having a relationship with his people. Paul explains these characteristics, these attributes of God to the Greeks here at the Areopagus. It says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. That's like their gods. Or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Uh, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn to him. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, guess who that is, whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So what has Paul just done? He's brought them the message of the cross. And now let's see the results. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And and this meaning, well, that was fun. Let's do it again. Okay, that's not too strong. But after Paul went out from their midst, 34, some men joined him and believed, among whom also were, and this sounds like it doesn't matter, but let's read it, Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. How many messages did Paul preach to this crowd? One. Did he make like a super smart message for the super smart people and a super not smart message for the super not smart people? No. And what was the result of this one message that was preached? Some mocked. Some thought that was a good time. And some believed. And of those who believed, what were they made of? I think this is really important that the Bible tells us this. It says, an Areopagite. Okay, so world's wisdom. Don't take this as, this is what I think too, okay? But world's wisdom. The Areopagite, the super smart dude who knows everything and is a a philosopher's philosopher. And a woman who happened to be there named Damaris. So who's God calling? With how many messages? The word of the cross. Where's the power? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. And then Paul reiterates this in 1 Corinthians 1. Hope you kept your finger there. Verse 23. He says, But we, those Jews, in that story they were demanding signs. The Greeks are seeking the world's wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. What is our central message, church? The gospel. Christ crucified. And this is what it is. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And that word stumbling block in the Greek, it's a word called, it's named scandalon. It's where we get the word scandalous from. To the Jew, a crucified Messiah is scandalous. And to the Greek, it's foolish. It's foolish. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, you say, well, didn't he say that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom? Yeah. Dead, blind, lost people demand things that shouldn't be demanded because we've turned things upside down. But God is saving a people from every people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth. So Jew, Greek, whoever you are, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It says here in verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men 
and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Think about this now. The Jews didn't want a crucified Messiah. At the time, especially when Christ came, what they wanted was a superior version of themselves who could give them what they wanted, which was their freedom. Who didn't they like? Rome. That's why it's so unbelievable that the Pharisees said, we have no king but Caesar. Because they wanted Christ crucified. They wanted another king, and it wasn't Caesar. They just said that to get what they wanted. But the Jews wanted that kind of a king. A king that, you know, I don't know, was like head and shoulders above the rest, that was good-looking, that could lead an army into battle. Kind of like who? Saul. So they wanted, they wanted the king that was following David. Not really. They really wanted the king that preceded David. Things hadn't changed much over time. Now, you might say that's my opinion. That's fine. But I think that's pretty much what they wanted, okay? <laughs> and then think about the Greeks. The Gentiles wanted philosophy. They wanted the world's wisdom. And, and, and if you think about it, all of these philosophies, what they are, it's a way for us to make sense of life. Which doesn't make sense. Life doesn't make sense outside of God. But we strive and we, we go after these ways to make sense of our life in, in such a way as to justify ourselves in our current condition. We want to make everything okay. And then we can't. And then we try harder and we still can't. But realize this, that Jesus Christ offers neither of these options. Christ wasn't that kind of a Messiah to the Jews. Something far better. But not what they sought. Christ doesn't offer a way to justify ourselves in our current condition. He offers us a way out of our current condition and gives us eternal life and righteousness. Christ offers neither of these things that the world seeks after. He gives us something far better because even the foolishness of God. Is there any foolishness with God? No. But if there was, and there isn't, even the foolishness of God wipes out any wisdom of man. This verse here, this foolishness of God, it's a word picture. It's a figure of speech. We know there's no foolishness of God. And this statement reminds us why we go to God's word for everything that life might bring our way. We don't want to rely on the wisdom of this world. We want to rely on the wisdom of this world's creator. Not our experiences, not our feelings, not our wisdom that we've obtained and all the books that we've read. We want to go to this book. That's why we go there, because his wisdom far surpasses. And this is why we believe in preaching that's what's called expository. Going through passages of the Bible, my job is to tell you what this says. That's my job. And we're in trouble. If I get in the habit, just if I do, you tell me, all right? If I get in the habit of just telling you what I've been thinking about lately, and I throw some Bible on top of it, we're in trouble. That's not good. Why? Well, because even the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And it's why it says in Romans ten seventeen, and you can probably finish this with me, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. So, in the Word of God, contained within the Word of God, is the message of the cross of Christ, the Gospel. And the wisdom of God and the power of God 
is there in that message, the gospel. So then let's answer our questions from the beginning of this time. Uh, Where will the ministry of our church get its power from? The gospel. Uh, How can we make sure that our ministry is effective? The gospel. Uh, How can we make the biggest impact in the city? The gospel. Uh, By making the gospel the central message of our ministry of discipleship, by making the gospel our, our message to the lost, And we might say, well, of course it would be our message to the lost. It makes obvious sense, right? What are we going to share with lost people? Well, the gospel. But we've got to be careful. Uh, Sometimes we try to fix people before we give them the gospel. Sometimes we're tempted to try to make sure people look a certain way, act a certain way, talk a certain way, make sure they'd be a good fit around here. And then we think, okay, they qualify. I'm going to share the gospel with them. But think about how backwards that is. Does sanctification occur prior to or after you get saved? After. Right? And watch out, because if that's what we believe how things ought to be, what do I believe? And how many of the things that I think people ought to be like to make, make it around here, to fit around here, how many of those things are Bible things? And how many of those things are world's wisdom things? We need to be careful with that. Uh, The gospel is our message. And then God's going to take that person when they believe and start working and making them to be like Jesus. So as long as I'm being more like Jesus and as long as you're being more like Jesus and as long as new converts are becoming more like Jesus, we're all going to be more like Jesus and we're going to get along just fine. (laughs) Right? Uh, Secondly, though, when we think about sharing the gospel with people, evangelizing, we can sometimes get scared. We can be hesitant, have a little bit nervous feeling as we get ready to do that kind of a thing, right? One of the reasons why sometimes, and and often this is younger people who will actually say it, but I think it's everybody, we're we're a little scared that we're going to get rejected. They'll reject me. They'll hate me. And a lot of times, the typical answer you get back will be something like, oh, they don't hate you, they just are rejecting Jesus. And while it's true they are rejecting Jesus, I think we should be honest with ourselves. They might hate you. And Jesus promised that. There may be some people who don't respect you, who don't like you, who stop talking to you because they know where you stand, and they know what you believe. Christ even said, families will be broken apart because of me. And so we got to know that. And is it still worth it? Yeah, it is. But then also something that keeps us sometimes from sharing it is the fear that we're not going to know all the answers to their questions. I don't know enough. I, know, I won't know what to say. I won't know how to answer their questions. And I just want to encourage you, that's okay. You don't have to know all of their questions. Think about this. If you're sharing the gospel with somebody and they bring in these questions, and if those questions enter into the arena of the wisdom of the world, do you even want to be there anyways? I don't mean with them, but I mean in that arena. What do you need to keep bringing them back to? The gospel. If they draw you away from the power, get back plugged into the power and go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how you have that conversation with love and grace, right? 
the passage in First Peter, that you do this with meekness and fear, with gentleness and humility. Uh, that's what it calls us to do. Um, so get him back to the gospel. And, and here's some ideas, okay? A little bit of an evangelism training right now. Crazy idea. Read the gospel of John with them. <laughs> Read the Bible. See if they'll come with you and sit down with you and, and read through the Gospel of John together. It won't be long before you get to John chapter 3. And you see, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And you're already right there, and the decision is presented. Uh, see if they'll read the Gospel of John with you and, and just be able and ready to answer questions they might have or to say, if you don't know the answer, that's a great question. I'm going to go check it out and find the answer, and then when we get together again, I'll I'll answer your questions. Can you do that? Yes, absolutely. They respect that. They know that. Uh, And then secondly, here's another crazy thought. Invite them to church. Invite people to come to church with you. They're going to hear the gospel here. And they're going to see then your life and see how you live and how the gospel impacts your every day. And it will continue to minister to them. And just to say to you, we're going to, the next couple of Sundays, as we finish out July, I'm going to keep going through 1 Corinthians 1 here, maybe something else between here and there. Once we get into August, uh, my desire is to preach Genesis and the Gospel of John. Not all the way through Genesis and then all the way through John, but do some of Genesis and get to a point and then do some of John and get to a point and go back and, and work through Genesis and John. What a great time to be inviting people here to hear those messages. What a great time for us to just be reminded of our foundations and why we're here and what this is all about. So invite people to church. They'll hear the gospel. And to those who believe, that gospel will be powerful and it's going to change their life. Amen? Uh, Listen, I've been so pleased. Been here now for about a week. (laughs) And then conversations that I've had before What I'm hearing over and over is your desire, and individually your desires, to have effective ministry here at First Baptist Church. A lot of you are asking me questions that basically boil down to, how can we get better? How can we do this better? And listen, right now I want you to be encouraged. Be encouraged. Number one, because you're asking questions like that, but even more importantly, because you are doing gospel ministry. We just did, you watched the video for Sportacular. Guess what that was this week? A bunch of kids that mostly aren't from this church hearing the gospel. Way to go. That's what we're supposed to do. And it's happening. And it wasn't my idea. And I didn't even do anything. I went and got ice cream afterwards. That's what I did. So be encouraged. This stuff is great. It's good. The gospel is being shared. We can always get better. We can. We can always get better. Ten years from now, twenty years from now, this church is going to be working on getting better at doing what it does. And as long as what it does is preach the gospel, there's going to be powerful ministry here. So be encouraged. Let's keep doing what we're doing. Let's keep getting better at it. But the gospel's where the power's at. So let's be a gospel-centered church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We, we acknowledge right now before you that we were once dead in our sins and our trespasses, but you were gracious. 
And you gave us Christ and you gave us salvation. We were saved by grace through faith and it's not of ourselves. It was a gift from you, not of our works. And we can't boast. But today we want to boast about you and, and praise your glorious name. God, I pray that you would help us as a church to honor you. That as our community looks at us, they would see Jesus Christ. They would hear the message of the gospel. And God, I pray that you would, you would bless that effort and bless this ministry. Uh, that you would be glorified by what we do here. And that you'd be glorified by all those who would call upon your name in this place. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.